This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Good news for uh, Stoco uh, employees, especially retirees, pensioners, uh, who felt as if they were left out in the cold with the deal that was going on with U.S. Steel and Stelco. Now, Stelco owners have paid a $142 million to help the company's pension plan. Uh, part of a long-term deal, we're told. Let's bring Marvin Ryder into the conversation, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Morning, Marvin. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you, Bill. Good. Is this a good news story? Well, I, I, certainly there's nothing down to it. There's no bad news to it at the moment. Let's, let's recap a little bit here, Bill. A couple of years ago, the last time we actually had a report on the state of the Stelco pension funds, they were only funded to about 73% of their commitments. That means that if everyone lived as long as the actuaries think they're going to live and everyone draws the pensions that they want to draw, there's going to be a shortfall. And when the uh, Stelco creditor protection ended on June 30th of last year, 2017, there was a lot of questions about what was going to happen with that shortfall. The new owners, Bedrock Industries, I think uh, said, well, look, this was, we didn't cause this shortfall, therefore we don't feel obligated to make up for all this shortfall. And what they announced at that time was that they were going to do a one-time payment of $30 million. They were going to put $10 million a year for the next five years, and so we're looking for the $10 million for this year, then $15 million for 15 years after that. But that would still leave a pension fund that was $800 million unfunded. By that point, and that's 20 years down the road, still over $400 million unfunded. Uh, but there was one other little clause that caught a lot of our attention. It was called the carried interest clause. Now, when we use the word interest, people normally think of like an interest on a loan. But this was more about an interest in the operations of the companies. And and although Mark McNeil and I, the reporter from The Spectator, neither of us are lawyers, and we've read this through three different ways, I get a different interpretation than Mark. But I think it goes like this. The carried interest clause said, if the company starts to make a profit, after such time as Bedrock got their money out of the company, 10% of the profit was going to go to the pension fund on top of these other payments to help top it up. Uh, but the problem is, Bill, that that would take five, six, seven years for the first payments to come in. They would obviously be very small, and the pension shortfall is now. It's a real obligation right now. So the union met with the nice people at Bedrock and said, look, can we... Can we fast forward this contribution? We'll waive this carried interest clause. We'll waive taking 10% of future profits in exchange for an upfront payment right now. And what they were able to negotiate was $142 million on top of these other obligations. But in, in giving us the $142 million, we'll have no future interest in the profits generated by this company. As I tried to explain to Mark McNeil, that's like the bird in the hand versus two in the bush. I've got a sure $142 million now. Now, if this company were to become a very, very profitable company generating billions of dollars in profits, well, you've sold yourself quite short. But on the other hand, if this company winds up back in credit, uh, creditor protection in 10 years, you're well ahead of the game. And so that's what they announced yesterday. The union was very proud to announce that we'd secured an additional 142 payment. And the key about the 142 million bill is it now takes the pension fund up to 85% funded, from 73% to 85%. There's still a shortfall, but almost half of that shortfall has now been covered. And with these other future payments, as well as whatever might come out of what's called Lanco, the future sales of the Stelco land, it's looking like the pensions are going to go, be able to go forward without any any change to them, if you're a retiree, no change to the payment that you're getting out of those funds. All right, a couple of things about that, and maybe the first one is about perspective. Uh, you mentioned 85% uh, for the uh, the fund. Uh, 
how is that compared to other pension funds? Because everybody took a hit years ago, and, and very few of them are back to 100%. Well, actually now, because it was 10 years ago, a number of them are getting very close to 100%. In fact, that was my surprise throughout all this restructuring was that why didn't the uh, Stelco pension funds perform better? Uh, there's something out there called the Hospital of Ontario's pension plan that would affect doctors and nurses who work in our various hospitals, and it's back to 100% full. McMaster's now back to 96% full. Uh, the teacher's pension plan is back to 100% full. It took 10 years, but they're back there. That was the surprise that somehow this pension fund wasn't being better managed. I'm less worried about that now, Bill, because another clause is this... Uh, uh, restructuring took place was that the administration of the Stelco Pension Fund is now, or excuse me, briefly was put in the hands of the Ontario government, but then they handed it over to Morneau Chappelle. And Morneau Chappelle is one of the premier uh, pension fund managers in the country. If anyone can make that healthy again, Morneau Chappelle is the people. So there's a lot of good news here both in terms of the payment, but also in terms of the administration of the fund. All right, let's look at this from both sides now, and we'll start with the, the bedrock side. This is this is a good deal for them. This is a lump sum payment, but it gets it off the table as far as they're concerned. Exactly. So uh, if I'm uh, Mr. Kestenbaum, who's the owner of Bedrock, really whatever I want to do with the company, I can do now. For instance, this 10% carried interest clause, suppose, suppose somebody walked into my office tomorrow and wanted to offer me a billion dollars for this company, and sell it to me for a billion dollars, I was going to have to transfer 10% of the proceeds to the pension fund if I go to sell this company over a certain amount. Now I don't have to worry about that. I've eliminated that obligation. Or, you know, I'm able to do, I might acquire some other companies. Maybe I can acquire Algoma. Some other steel companies make this a bigger issue. Now I'm making profit, but oh yeah, 10% of all the profit I generate has to go to this pension fund. So they've eliminated that future obligation. And so if there's an upside, if there's a, a real strong potential for this company, I've cleared it. What's the bad news, of course, is <laughs> if it's got a real strong future, the union may, may have sold itself short. Yeah, we'll get into that in a second. But I mean, this, as you mentioned, this makes it a much more attractive entity when and if they decide they want to dump this thing or sell it off, even, I mean, even if it becomes profitable. Uh, in the future. that's It's one encumbrance that's been eliminated now. So if, if Marvin Ryder wants to buy Stelco at some point down the line, and when you cash in your pension, uh, the, then obviously you can simply say, well, I don't have to worry about anything. This is just a cash deal for anything, and I don't, there's nothing, uh, no side deals going on here. So that looks good. So let's Absolutely. talk about... So, and Bill, just to piggyback on that, that was one of the key things about this whole bedrock deal last year, was that in, in taking over Stelco, they wanted to become less encumbered. So they found a way to deal with the environmental concerns. Those were offloaded to the land co. They got rid of the pension concerns through these kinds of deals. They got rid of all the debt through the court-ordered things. So they wanted to be footloose and fancy-free, for lack of a better term, and, and they, this is what they got. And also, Bill, I can tell you that you might remember last fall they did an initial public offering of stock. I think it was $250 million. They actually had to put into the um, prospectus around issuing the stock this carried interest clause to warn people buying the stock that, well, you know, when we make money, it's not exactly that all of it will be available to you for dividends. Some of it may have to go here. It's just, again, a little wrinkle that you don't have to do. It doesn't cause anybody's eyebrows to go up. All right, you mentioned Landco, which, of course, is uh, the company that's going to look after the land sale of all those uh, surplus Stelco lands. Uh, the fly in the ointment there, and I hate to be the you know the guy bringing all the bad news in, but we need to talk about this, is the devalued uh, assessment of those lands that we found out about a couple of months ago yep. now, and that's that's got to have an impact on that number. 
Well, you know, it, it raises just a, a boatload of questions here. I mean, to me, the first thing that I'd, I'd love to hear is that Lanco has been established, that there's a board there. I'd like to hear what the board's initial plans are. Uh, the devaluation of the land came about because during the uh, Stelco restructuring, the court heard in an open session, in, the, in an open public session, uh, some assessment of the lands and indicating that mu much of this surplus land has environmental concerns on it. And so that caused the Municipal Assessment Board to say, well, then I'm not sure it's really worth all that much. And they dramatically reduced the value of the land. I think it was down to something like $500 an acre or $1,000 an acre. We were hoping to get nearly a million dollars an acre, and that could still be possible. So I would love to hear from this land co whenever it gets established to hear uh, what are you going to remediate first? What's the cost of remediation? You have a pot of money. The way I understand it is somewhere between 60 and $80 million to begin this remediation process. It's quite possible there could be severely contaminated land, but that probably isn't where you're going to start. You're going to start with the more modestly contaminated land. But I'd love to hear that plan. And, and frankly, Bill, remember, June 30th last year was when the uh, restructuring finished. Bedrock wound up owning Stelco on July 1st. Here we are nine months later, ten months later, still no news from Lanco. That's the one that's got me a little concerned. Well, and, and justifiably concerned, and I guess we'll have to wait and see exactly what's going to happen with that. Uh, now, from the pensioner's standpoint, I, I understand, I mean, the way you've described this, it's really option A is take a lump sum payment now for your pension, or B is assume or hope that the thing is going to get better and there'll be more money down the road. But i got to figure, if I'm on the north side of 65, uh, I'd take the money now. I mean, you don't want to gamble because you don't know how much longer. This may take 10 years, and, and you may not be around in 10 years. In fact, it could take 20 years, Bill, and, and exactly correct, that, that if I'm uh, 75 or 80, I, I'm worried about my pension today. I'm not worried about it 20 years from now, and I hate to be this blunt, but yes, I may not be around 20 years from now, and I think this is what the union was looking at. They, they liked the carried interest clause initially when it was negotiated to say, I get some chunk of any future profits, but then the reality also set in that it would take a while for this company to be generating enough of those profits to significantly impact the uh, the shortfall in the pension fund. So they opened the door, and, and I have to, again, give both sides credit. I think it was clever on the union's part to open the door, but I also think it was very forward-thinking of the, the company to say, let's talk about this, let's come to some deal. I can't tell you seriously, Bill, if 142 is the right number. Should it have been 160 or 180 or, or 85 even? Uh, but they found a way to put more money into the pension fund sooner. And if I'm a current retiree, I'm thrilled to hear that. What's this say about Bedrock? Uh, because there was some speculation about a year ago, Marvin, when this deal happened, that what Bedrock was going to do was put a coat of paint on this and then try to put it back in the market and sell it and try to make a few bucks. Uh, it sounds as if they're in here, I don't want to use the term the long haul, because that's not what Bedrock does necessarily, but maybe longer than people had anticipated. Right. So uh, if you can remember the last round of creditor protection, we're talking more than a decade ago, there were some companies that wound up owning Stelco. They were called like Appaloosa Capital and, and uh, Sun something or other capital. Uh, and although they assured us at the time they were here for the long haul, they were actually like house flippers, got the company, tidied it up a little bit, and sure enough, two and a half years after they took ownership, they flipped it to somebody else. In that case, it was U.S. Steel. Uh, they really weren't. Now, this company, Bedrock itself, is a new company. It was only formed in February of 2016, so it's barely two years old. 
But Mr. Kessenbaum, the principal behind it, he has a track record, and his track record is not to flip a company in two years, but more on the order of 10 to 15 years. And he also has a habit of taking an initial acquisition, let's call it Stelco, and then adding some more things to it so that when he goes to flip it, he's got a much bigger entity and his reward is going to be much bigger at the end. So I think the fact that they were prepared to talk about this, remember this is an obligation, this uh, carried interest clause was an obligation over the next 20 years, and he wanted to clear it now, it really is, is matches his thinking on that 10, 15, 20-year time horizon. Um, the only downside is if he really makes magic happen, if he's got the Midas touch, you may have sold out for a little too little. But right now I have no ability to know. This, is, this was a sick company. It's a healthier company, but it's far from being a, a gold mine, if you will. So I, I don't blame anyone for doing this now, but I think he, he is interested in the longer haul, and this clears an obligation for him. All right, but when they, and they are going to come to a point where they're going to say, okay, we want to sell this off now, because that's, that's what Bedrock does. Right. Uh, we should mention, by the way, that this $142 million we're talking about is not the only thing they've done. I mean, they already put $30 million into the fund, and part of the deal here is $10 million in annual payments for the first five years and then $15 million in annual payments the following 15 years. Right. Now, does that... Provide an encumbrance to somebody who may want to buy that, and said, "I'm not so sure I want to make that commitment." Sure, absolutely, it would. Now, it would all again depend upon how profitable it is, Bill. If it's making profits of 300 million, and I've got to take the first 15 and and put it into the pension fund, well, that's just that's a small amount I can live with that. If it was only making a $25 million profit, and the first $15 million has to go into the pension fund, it would be a significant encumbrance. So, for, for again, for Mr. Kestenbaum to get maximum value, he needs to get the profits up to a point that whatever these obligations are, they are seen as easy to meet, almost trivial to meet. I mean, that's good news for the pensioners, obviously. Instead of a percentage, it's, it's a fixed amount. And, and obviously, there's been agreement by both parties. But I'm just wondering down the road what could happen. Yeah, and, and by the way, it's a fixed amount, and it's in the bank account now. Like, they signed this agreement last week. The check has been issued. The money has been deposited. And I should also note, Bill, just again, so everyone's clear about this, the money went into both, uh, shall I call it, the, the hourly workers, the, the, the shift workers, the unionized workers' pension fund, but also into some of the super supervisory people's pension funds. Both pension funds were uh, were underfunded, and they split the $142 million. I think it was 98 went into one of these funds, 40 went into another one of these funds. So, so that everybody is benefiting, and everyone's pension is much more secure today. Now, one other little footnote, uh, and I'm not trying to politic for anybody, but in Kathleen Wynne's budget of last week, there was a little footnote that missed us all. I didn't see it. I bet you didn't see it. And that is that the amount that the Ontario government is going to guarantee for pensions went up from $1,000 a month to $1,500 a month. So when you put all of that together, if I'm a pensioner, I should be sleeping a lot better this week. Marvin Ryder with the School of Business. Uh, as always, thanks, Marvin. Great talking with you today. My pleasure, Bill. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Canada is uh, a reputation worldwide, at least we think it does anyway, is a, a cultural mosaic. We accept people from all over the world and we uh, accept their cultures and uh, accept the differences in religion. Uh, it's a much better country than some others when it comes to that sort of thing. We're, uh, well, maybe fooling ourselves because a recent survey indicates that the majority of Canadians are actually concerned about the rise of racism in this country. Uh, we cannot look down and see what's going on south of the 49th parallel and say, God, I wish, I'm glad we're not like that. 
Well, because of that, there's a very timely series which is beginning tonight on Global News entitled Hashtag First Time I Was Called. And uh, joining us to talk about this is Farah Nasser. Farah, of course, is the uh, co-anchor of Global News at 530 and 6. And uh, looking forward to uh, what, uh, this discussion and, and what's going on. Farah, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, I read your blog from last week, uh, My First Experience with Racism. It's a very compelling piece. Uh, uh, and obviously it sets the scene for what you're going to be doing in this uh, this series that's coming up. Talk to us about what motivated you to get involved in this project. Well, I mean, it was it was uh, something, it was a conversation I had with uh, somebody very close to me, um, and it was about religion. And I am a Muslim. I uh, am, uh, you know, someone of, of faith. And the person made fun uh, about something about my religion. And, um, I, you know, I we work with like cynical journalists all the time. I'm used to, I have a pretty thick skin, but um, in this particular case, I said, you know, I'm not going to just let things roll off. I'm going to tell this person how I feel and how it upsets me and how it affects me. Um, and, you know, the person said this comment, but it wasn't, it wasn't malicious at all. It was just a joke. Um, but I told them how it may be a joke to them, but to me, it's, it's not funny. It actually hurts. It hurts. Um, and that person was just shocked. They were just stunned that they had upset me in this way and they were so apologetic and said you know i had no idea you felt this way um and our conversations around religion have changed uh which is is what uh what I didn't realize would come out of me telling them how I felt. Um, and then I thought, you know, there's, there's two types of people in this world. There's the people who, um, you know, are, are say things with, with evil intent and uh, who are mean-spirited. But the majority of people are people who might say things in, in, a, in a certain way and, and not even realize that they're affecting uh, someone and not realize the consequences of, of what they've said. And I thought, what if we could reach these people by, by just explaining what it feels like to be on the other end? Um, and that's what sparked this conversation and the hashtag, first time I was called. Let me ask you about that incident once again, because it was the more recent one that you talked about in the blog. Would you have reacted the same way if that had happened five years ago? And I'm sure it did. Yeah, no, I don't think I would have. I think um, I, I think the, the world has changed, and I think we we have to stand up for ourselves. I mean, when it came to the, for example, the Me Too movement, you saw women in droves coming out talking about how they had felt, and you had so many men who said, "Really, this is you feel this way? I had no idea." And um, I, I think it, it opened up it opened up people's mindsets, and um, that's that wasn't originally intention with this series, but it, it's I think what's what's we've seen on social media that people have have been surprised, and they're thankful um, that they're I mean I've retweeted quite a few people, and and they're thankful they're like thank you for for you know validating how I feel because uh, when you when you talk about someone's race or you talk about their sexuality or you talk about um, you know their ability, these are things that they cannot change about themselves, so it really stings even if it's a joke or meant to be lighthearted, it, it, it bothers people, and they likely won't tell you. And this is happening in workplaces all over our country. Um, and people are not, I feel like they're not able to speak up about it. And I'm so glad I did, because it, again, it, it, it changed my relationship with this individual in a positive way. But the rationalization that I've heard, and I'm sure you do uh, many times too, Farah, is, well, come on, it's just a joke. There has to be a butt of the joke. And, you know, so you just have to develop a thick skin. I mean, that was the attitude for so long. And and do you, do you sense that that's starting to change now? Um, I mean, a 
look, I, I hope it is. But we live in a time, Bill, I mean, you know this. We, we live in a time of divisive politics. Hate crimes are on the rise with certain minority groups. Um, and, and, you know, we're seeing on, on, online in my career, my 20-year career, I've never seen um, so much hateful speech in terms of, for me personally, it's about my faith and my race. Um, you know, it's, it's become a common occurrence. Every few weeks I'll get a, a really mean-spirited, racist tweet, and I just kind of let it roll off. Well, you know, I don't think we can do that anymore. I think that's that's part of the problem. I mean, social media obviously is a huge part of the problem. Yeah. But I think it's also that we're just being silent and saying, oh, it's just these these few people who are saying this, or it's just a joke. Well, well, no, it's not. It's, if, it's, if it's something that bothers you, we need to speak up about it. And it's easier for some people to do and not easy for some people to do. And, and I'd like to think that's happening. And I'd like to think that the, the Me Too movement, it was, was a catalyst for that, uh, even though that dealt more with sexual assault. But I think it broadens the, the discussion now to talk about, about ethnicity and about religion. Uh, and, and you're right. I mean, five minutes on Facebook will just make you shake your head and say, God, we're just not making any progress at all. I, I'd like to think that those are the Luddites, but I mean, they still exist and they still have influence. Absolutely. And, and they, I mean, we, we call people social media trolls and, and that kind of thing, but the, the perspectives that people have, I mean, some of them, some of them are really deep-seated. And some of them don't, some people don't realize how, um, how their language and how their speech uh, impacts people. And then, like I said, there's, there's, a, there's a group of people who are just going to be jerks, and they're, they're just going to say what they want. And those people I don't, even, I, don't, I, mean, I don't even pay attention to. But it's the other people who, who you know, you, you call them out on things, and, and, and for me, this happened in 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 person and they, they, they're just stunned. They're, they don't realize that they've affected you in this way and they're so apologetic for it. And I think those are the people that, that will, you know, will, will be able to change things. Those are the people who are going to change our future. There's a, a piece in the blog and I wonder if you, you could just relate it for our listeners uh, about when you were just a little girl growing up in Mississauga and your first experience, which I, I guess goes back to the title of the piece here, The First Time I Was Called. Uh, and you still recall that as if it was yesterday. Yeah, and that's the funny thing. I mean, it's, it's, I wrote about this piece. I was telling somebody about this, and this was another kind of catalyst for this piece. I was saying that I remember the first time I was called a Paki um, in Mississauga, and Mississauga was very different then. It wasn't um, as multicultural. Now half the residents come from somewhere else, but it certainly wasn't like this when I grew up. And um, the person had said to me, you remember that? And I said, yeah. I mean, I don't remember a lot of when I was six years old, but that moment, that moment in time is etched in my memory because it gives me a visceral reaction to think about it. Like it, it's something that I, I can take myself back to that moment when that person said that and how, how it made me feel in that moment. It made me feel less of a person. Um, it made me feel like I, I, wasn't, I wasn't good enough, you know, and it had a real impact on me in terms of my life. Like it, it, made, me, it made me not want to be Indian or not want to be, and my parents are from East Africa, from India via East Africa, and it made me not want to have that part of the culture because that was bad and seen as wrong. And um, that really saddens me that I, I, I felt like that at some point because I'm very, very proud of my, my heritage and my culture now. Um, but it took a while to get there. And it had an impact on you for years to come. Yeah, it did. And I'm sure that wasn't the only experience. That's the one I remember so clearly. Yeah. Um, but I'm sure there was many other experiences in my life that, that uh, you know, led up to now. But it's, it's I mean, it, like, I'm speaking out about it, Bill, but there's so many people who work in, in workplaces where, you know, their, their boss or their colleague or whatever will say something and they just don't want to stir the pot um, and they just want to, you know, let it go. Well, it's, you know, maybe these same 
colleagues and bosses will read one of the tweets and see that this feels like that, maybe they'll change their perspective and change the conversation. But as, as you read this in the blog, and, and I'm sure you'll cover this on the series too, Farah, mm-hmm. uh, that incident, uh, I mean, you're that, at that very formative age at six years of age where we're starting to, to develop our social skills and social interactions at school and other places. And we want to be accepted. I mean, that's, you know, that's human nature, I think, for that to happen. And then all of a sudden you get this, this term, this derogatory term. You're not Pakistani, but that was the word that was going around back in those days. Yeah. You're, you're a Paki. And, and from what you write in the blog, it almost caused you to disavow your, your ethnicity and your, and your heritage and your religion. Yeah. I mean, my mom, I remember my mom making Indian food for my lunch, like, uh, tindery chicken wraps, and I wanted nothing to do with these sandwiches. I mean, I, you know, I wanted, I didn't want anything to show people that I was Indian because I was, I was such a minority in, in, in my school. And I, we, you know, my parents registered me for this uh, classical Indian dancing called Kathak, and I just, I did not want to go to this class. I wanted nothing to do with that. Um, and it, it, you know, and now I look back, I realize uh, where that, where that stemmed from because this was such a pivotal moment in my life. And again, this kid who called me Packy, he, I'm sure if you, I was talked to him now. I don't even remember what his name was. He'd probably apologize or probably feel awful about it. And it was, you know, kids call each other names all the time. And I, you know, I that you forgive that and that kind of thing. But it still was something that that, that, that shook me at that time, and I didn't tell my parents about it because I didn't want them to feel bad. But, I mean, I've been called that so many times since then, you know, as a, as a teenager. Uh, I remember a, a, an old boyfriend's mom said that about me, not knowing that I was listening, you know, who wasn't uh, from, uh, wasn't South Asian. I mean, it, it's just a word that, that really bothers me, you know, because it's this umbrella term, and it has a negative connotation. Well, we saw that. I mean, you see this, and I guys, you guys talk about it all the time on Global News. Sadly, there are so many incidents of this, but we saw this right after 9-11 here in Hamilton uh, when some clowns decided to, to deface the, 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 the Muslim mosque up on the mountain here and then went on and, and, tore, and tore apart the, the Hindu Samaj temple and started setting that on fire, just thinking, well, they look the same, they must all be the same, and they're all evil. And, and that, that kind of moronic thinking just it's it's still there and i guess what bothers me and and certainly i guess bothers a number of folks including you to to motivate you to do this is it seems as if we're seeing a resurgence in that kind of attitude yeah you know it's funny that you say that bill because i I often wonder that when when i was young as i said that there there was racism and then it kind of went away i remember in in high school starting this group with a bunch of people called students today against racism tomorrow and uh, it was this club and it was great and then and we talked about race issues and it kind of went away in university and now i feel like these terms on on social media even you know you hear people kind of making making jokes and i think it's become okay um because of of what we're seeing south of the border because of what we're seeing uh, in terms of divisive politics to, to say some of these words and these terms and have these views again maybe they were always there they were just hidden and now they're back but i think in order to heal in order to progress we need to talk about how it feels to be called these terms and and to be feel to feel like you're not included especially in the most diverse country in the world well sure and i mean when you've got a guy who was running for president back in those days you know saying that you know we want to put this travel ban on we've got to find out what's going on with those muslims i mean that that that, that feeds the fire in situations like this, or are the Latinos are the ones that are taking your jobs? And I mean, that that that's the, not the sort of thing that you need to try to you know to garner inclusiveness. And it's happening, and we're starting to see it happen on this side of the border. I think what your your blog points out, and certainly I guess what the series is going to point out, is we're not immune from this by any stretch of the imagination. 
Yeah, and, and that's the thing. I mean, it's that's what upsets me, and I think that's what upset a lot of people that we were speaking to. I mean, we spoke to we spoke to uh, Jagmeet Singh, we spoke to um, you know the premier, we spoke to Julie Black, who's uh, you know an award winning musician, mm-hmm, sure. and they all said, you know, this is. You don't think it happens in this country, but it happens in this country. And you know what else? There, a woman just wrote to me this weekend about the series and said, "I came from. I'm, I'm mixed. I came from California, and I never experienced discrimination there. And I experienced it here in Ontario, in suburban Ontario. And so, you know, we think we are immune to this, but we can even do better." I'm glad you brought that up about some of the other folks that you're going to talk to because it indicates exactly what's happened. And we we look at those people like like Jagmeet Singh, of course, the the leader of the federal NDP party. And, and you have to put some humanity into this and realize this is a guy who was growing up as a minority at the time uh, and, and certainly had experienced this. And he had some horrific stories. I know there's one of them that you're going to be carrying on the news today, but some of the experiences he went through when he was a kid about having his turban ripped off and his hair pulled and things of this nature. Some horrific stories that, quite frankly, an awful lot of people just tried to suppress, figuring, I don't want to make any waves because it's only going to get worse. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's a real. I, at least I know in 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 my culture and in my family, it was always like, "Don't make waves. We're just lucky to be here. You know, we're we're um, we're very thankful that we're Canadian. You know, people will say what they want. Let's just let it go." Well, no, you know, we've come we've come a long way now. So now we don't have to just sit there and kind of take it. We can say things. We can say things back. Um, Jagmeet Singh is a great example because he talked about this when he was younger, and then more recently, you remember that viral video where a woman was, uh, I think, a Accusing him of, of uh, you know being uh, being Muslim and, and being uh, you know I don't know if it, I don't know if she used the term terrorist but she was kind of alluding to to Sharia law and all this kind of stuff um, and he responded with with love and courage and he kept saying that over and over love and courage and he didn't even at one point say well no I'm a Sikh I'm not a Muslim because he said no matter what all minority communities are are in this together in, in the sense that you know we have to we kind of have to fight this discrimination and he was he handled it so well in that video went viral so it's still happening today even even with politicians well and the, and those are some of the stories we need to hear too but this is such a timely piece for for the, the simple reason that as you point out in the blog you know even in your hometown of mississauga and and right through the gta and into the hamilton area here uh we are a diverse culture and and whether we like it or not you better get used to it and there has to be some discussion here uh, about coexistence, and, and instead we seem to be going at the other end. And, and I just feel sometimes as if we're taking one step forward and two steps back. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the social media thing is is a, is a little scary, right? Because where our feeds are curated to to see what we want to see. So people who have these views are going to keep having these views because they think everybody around them does. When it's really the people who are their friends, you know, and people who are who believe in uh, like you who believe, you know, this we should have an inclusive society will look at their feeds and see all that, and you know, we won't see the other perspective from from other people. So I think I think we we really have to have these conversations, and not just on Line, in person with our friends, with our neighbors, um, and, and talk about how, how this makes people feel. Because I think once you understand that, I think that does change your perspective. I think that does shape conversations. Um, and I hope it works in this case. You know, there's a conversation going on nationally here about uh, the importance of news and especially local news. And uh, that's a debate that is going to unwind in whatever fashion, I guess. And uh, we're not sure how that's going to end up. I mean, there's some problematic things going on with journalism right now. But the fact that Global News has taken this initiative, as they have with others, and you, you've been uh, the, right up in the forefront with doing some of these shows to, to actually shine the light on some of the concerns that we need to be talking about 
And uh, this is exactly the thing we should be talking about at this time. I'm looking forward to this. It starts tonight, right? It starts tonight on Global News, uh, and if you miss it on Global, you can watch it online. It'll be on our website as well. So, Excellent. Um, hope you tune in. Farah, thanks so much for the great work that you did putting this whole thing together. I look forward to watching it, and thanks for the time today. Great talking with you again. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks again, Bill. Take care. Farah Nasser, of course, co-anchor of Global News at 530 and 6. The, uh, the series is called First Time I Was Called, and uh, it's well worth watching. Check it out tonight on Global. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Right now, I want to talk about something a little closer to home. Uh, The city of Hamilton is uh, trying to change its port zoning rules to exert more control over waste processing plants or any other things that they have some concerns about that are uh, being proposed and in some cases already moving forward uh, on port lands down there. And that's an interesting definition. We'll get into that in a couple of seconds. Chad Collins is the uh, city councilor for Ward 5 uh, over in the east end of uh, our shoreline, and uh, he joins us to talk about some of those concerns. Chad, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Maybe right off the top, just to set the uh, the record for the, our listeners, when we talk about port lands, uh, and, and that's an awful lot of the work that uh, that's going on right now, uh, maybe I define that exactly what that is and what we're dealing with. Well, Port Lanes in particular essentially includes the entire shoreline around the harbor area. And and that also includes, in a very technical way, the recreational areas that we, we see around Bayfront Park and Pier 4 Park all the way over to the uh, high-level bridge. And, and then that extends easterly all the way over to Eastport until we hit the canal area and then we're into the, the municipality of Burlington. And so it's a very, very large geographic area that encompasses a lot of land uses. The recreation that I noted, of course, dominant, dominated by industry along much of the shoreline. And then we have some natural areas in there with the Sherman Inlet and, of course, Windermere Basin, which is part of today's report, and extending through again to a different kind of industrial along Eastport Drive. Now, the city some years ago actually decided on a policy, and I'm going to make this very simple, Chad, just for the sake mm-hmm. of, of the discussion. Essentially, yeah. the East Harbor is, is where there's going to be a lot of industry. The West Harbor is where there's going to be recreational and, and hopefully some residential, as we've talked about. But mm-hmm. but there, there is a definite plan that's in place. Yeah, absolutely. So we have our recreational master plan. You've covered that extensively in the West Harbor in terms of new condominiums and the lands we inherited through the legal sentiment with the former Harbor Commission and, and our, our recreational improvements and even some commercial improvements there with the extension of the Williams and, and other shops and businesses that we're going to see in the next five to ten years in that area. And then, of course, on the other side, there's there's almost a dividing line when you pass the uh, HMCS Star, the uh, where the Haida, most people would be familiar where the Haida is parked along the shoreline there. That's where you start to get into that buffer area between the recreation and industry. And then just after that property there on Pier 10, we're, we're really into the heart of, of heavy industry. So the city's plans um, in 2013, I requested my colleagues to go through a Bayfront strategy, and that was around the whole issue of, you know, what's after Stalco? We have lands that are, um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of acres of lands that are vacant. They're brownfield properties, and the zoning on them is, is, is dated to the mid part of, our, of the last century. So the question then becomes, well, when we start to see the exodus of some of these industrial giants, um, nothing new to this community in terms of what we witnessed through the 70s, 80s, and up till today, um, what's the plan? What is the plan for those lands? Is it a continued industry? If it is industry, are there rules and regulations placed upon those industries? Because as you know, Bill, that whole area is dominated by K industrial lands, which essentially carry no regulations. I mean, there was just a point a few years ago where there wasn't even a requirement to pave parking lots. And so, you know, there are air quality issues that come with those types of things. 
And so that the, that direction was provided to staff. We're now funding a study. We have consultation with the community. And, and, um, and part of that plan is to look at the zoning in some of those areas, specifically areas in this instance that are managed by the Port Authority. Well, and let's talk about that because I guess the elementary question here is who owns the land? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the Port Authority does own a, a large um, amount of land around the port. Um, you know, the Stelco and, and ArcelorMittal properties are distinctly uh, private properties. And then there, of course, as you get towards Burlington Street, there are a number of other smaller, small to medium-sized industrial properties that are owned by the private sector. But as you, as you, you know, you get past the Stelco and DeFasco properties, uh, the Port Authority owns hundreds of acres uh, between there and all the way around to, to the lift bridge. And then, of course, on the other side of Stelco and DeFasco, they own lands um, leading up to uh, Pier 10, almost near P- Pier 8. So they're, they're a very uh, large player in the port. They have been for well over 100 years. They manage those par- port lands under federal legislation. And as you know, Bill, you were part of those negotiations quite some time ago. Yep. We've always had an arm wrestling match with the port in terms of whether or not they, they should follow m- municipal planning rules. Yeah, because they, they, they play under a set, different set of rules. They, I mean, correct. they're 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 under the guise of the federal government as opposed yep. to municipal government. Yeah, much and, like and there's there's where the conflict starts. You got it. Much like railway companies, you know, they march to their own drum, and um, they 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 have their own legislation. They are an arm's length organization of the federal government. They're they're managed through the Canada Marine Act uh, in terms of the legislation that applies to them. That was recently updated in the year two thousand. And it really pre- excludes them or precludes them from going through a municipal planning process. So if I can give you an example, a private operator that was to purchase land along Burlington Street who is looking at opening a waste facility or some kind of manufacturing plant may have to go through a rezoning application if they buy land that, um, that, that their use doesn't conform to. They would have to submit a site plan. There would be a public consultation for that kind of a, an application, much like there would be for any other rezoning application. And the public would have an opportunity, as would council and our staff, to to scrutinize the application to ensure that it's if it's within the planning um, rules and regulations that we've established, that their environmental issues are dealt with, and so on. The Port Authority um, works under a different scenario. If it's under the t- clause shipping and navigation, if it has anything to do with their core mandate, which is shipping and navigation, then they're not uh, they're not required to follow that process. And essentially, there's no opportunity for the public and or council or, or staff to scrutinize the applications or developments that they have, case in point, the gasification plant that we dealt with just a few short years ago. And, and we saw the, the problem. And by the way, I, I just want to say something. We're not trying to paint the Port Authority out here to be the bad guys, because they aren't. Mm-hmm. Uh, they mm-hmm. do an outstanding job, and they brought an awful lot of industry in here, and, and that's been beneficial to the city uh, and to the ports, of course. We've got with the busiest, uh, one of the busiest ports, I guess, on the Great Lakes, if not the busiest. So yep. th- there's a lot of good news stuff here. But their their interests and their their goals sometimes will conflict with the cities, and maybe that's the that's best right. way to put it. That really is. That's a great summary. And, and uh, absolutely, there's no discounting the fact that they do good things in the community in terms of uh, employment and generating taxes for the municipality and um, and attracting investment to this community, you know, much like our, our economic development department does here at City Hall. The, the problem we run into, and it's every once in a while, it seems to be every five to seven years, there's an application that comes forward where the city says, look, you, you know, y- you need to follow a better process because the public, there's a desire amongst the neighbors or amongst the broader public for you to uh, you know to 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 follow the city's process and in the port, understanding that at times they're dealing with tenants 
at times they're dealing with people who are making significant investments have a different opinion. And, and, and so this process today um, looks at if there is a waste processing plant, and that seems to be where we've, we've had most of our conflicts, yeah. that there'd be a holding provision placed on the property because the city's opinion is waste processing is not a core business related to shipping and navigation. We could point to all kinds of manufacturing jobs. We can point to um, all kinds of activities in terms of bulk storage that we see scattered around the port. Much of that comes in by boat or is leaving the city by, by boat or by barge. And, and there can, a case could be made there that it's shipping and navigation. Waste is a different story. I attended the gasification plant, if I we use that again as the example. I attended the public meeting that the proponent held in consultation and cooperation with the Port Authority. And they were quite clear with their summary that, um, in fact, the vast majority, 99% of the materials were going to be trucked in to the facility or trucked out of the facility. And so that, uh, I think, is, a, is an example where we could argue uh, with, with the information we received from the applicant that, in fact, there, there's little to do with shipping and navigation, and there should be a different process. Let's, let's set the rules here, because th- there's a, a, a problem here with City Council uh, when there is a difference of opinion between the City Council position and, and of course, the Port Authority. Uh, mm-hmm. Most stuff that, that is, is built, planned, rebuilt, whatever, as, as people, I think, know, goes to the planning committee here at City Council, and there's a mm-hmm. process according to the Planning Act. As you mentioned, Chad, there have to be public meetings, and the, the yep. public can have delegations and have input into this. Uh, if you have a difference of opinion with the Port Authority, uh, that process doesn't happen. And you have really, even though it comes before the Planning Committee, it's really for information, you have what they call commenting That's privileges, right. which basically right. means I think this stinks, uh, but it's non-binding. That's right, and usually our only recourse is through the province. So oftentimes, well, I think in every instance, waste facilities require what used to be referred to as a certificate of approval, it has a new name down, that name escapes me, but they are required to get a provincial permit for their waste. And traditionally, as a commenting agency, we would then provide the planning issues in addition to the environmental issues and concerns that we would have as part of that comment to the province, hoping that at some point in time the ministry would see fit to take into account all of the concerns that we have. And, of course, that hasn't always been the case. Uh, and and, and what, we, you know, what we're left with afterwards, when some of these operations uh, open, and, uh, and are operating, um, we're then left to deal with the ministry in this kind of a cat and mouse game in terms of, you know, fallout that may we may experience or migration from the site in terms of odors or other nuisance complaints that, um, you know, by the time it's opening and we're phoning the ministry, it's, it's kind of too late to put some kind of parameters or checks and balances in place that we would hope to, that would uh, at some point in time would, would protect the community from these types of industrial um, um, issues and concerns. And now we're talking about this as it relates to what's going on at the port, but it's not exclusive to the port. I mean, I, I can remember the uh, controversial decision about a, a quarry out in Flamborough some years mm-hmm. ago. Now, that was the provincial government, not the federal government. But again, what can happen in some of these situations is the people that want to do this sort of stuff basically sidestep city council altogether and just go to the province and get their permission. And and you guys, you're left saying, hey, wait a second here. Now, the, the quarry thing finally ended in favor of what the residents wanted, mm-hmm. uh, not so much with some of these decisions with the port. How frustrating is it when, to, 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 to say, look, at we, we're, we've got problems with this, we've talked to the residents about this, mm-hmm. uh, yet at the same time, if they, if they get that certificate of approval, uh, the game's over. Yeah, absolutely. And once it's operating, you're, you're then into that cat and mouse scenario that I talked about in terms of enforcement. 
And so it is. But, but those those disgruntled residents are going to come back to the council and say, "Why didn't you do something yeah. about it?" And, and yeah, in absolutely. fact, more often than not, they've done everything they're allowed to by law. But the the laws aren't very strong toward the municipality. No, exactly. And usually, when these federal changes take place, I think the last one might have been about a decade ago in terms of changing the legislation. These legislative changes that provide port authorities with these powers, again, not to paint a, a, a scary picture of them, but to be fair, the, these these legislative changes happen at the national level. There's really no public consultation. No one's going to the Sherman neighborhood. No one's going to the Beach neighborhood to say, we're thinking of making changes to the, the, the Port uh, Authorities Act. We, we would love for everybody to line up around the, <laughs> around the table here and tell us what you think of the current legislation. You know, I, I think, A, there's an educational issue. Most people really don't know whose jurisdiction it is. Most people assume that all planning is local, which it is not. In this, in, and I think that you know, our discussion here, I think, points to, to an issue that is of national significance and it falls under the national legislation. But really, there's no local public input that helps the federal government determine where they're going with rules and regulations that apply to port authorities. And I know that they'll say that they've had a public meeting that was advertised on page 26 of the newspaper, but, um, you know, we haven't seen anything substantive, Bill, in terms of getting people out and, and talking about ways to improve the legislation that's going to assist them from a planning perspective and from an environmental perspective. And so that's what we're left with. We're left with now people then phoning their city councillor, who they have direct access to, and asking, you know, is there a way that we can hold a public meeting? Can we get the media involved? Can we raise some, you know, some issues with our local MPs? And, you know, as you know, we have a lot of opposition MPs locally who certainly agree with the residents. But at the end of the day, we find these things pass, um, you know, they pass the Port Authority as, as, as leases. These developments then take place. And, and are constructed, and then we're left with the fallout afterwards. Well, and some of those public meetings, I've heard from some of the residents that have attended those, and they go away from those meetings feeling that all they did was tell us what they're going to do. They didn't really want mm-hmm. to get our input into this. So what mm-hmm. can the city do? i got a couple of minutes left here. You, yep. the, the talk you said about changing some of those zoning bylaws, what effect, if at all, can they have? Well, I think what we're doing today, I think the most important aspect of today's report, and there will be another one that follows in terms of our global based run strategy, sorry, global bayfront strategy that deals with land uses around the Stel- vacant Stelco lands and other areas. But today's in particular deals with placing and holding provision, provision on lands where if the port that so chooses then to, to introduce a waste processing facility, then they're required to produce uh, certain documents and studies. And those, those documents um, would, would assist the city as a commenting agency in understanding what the impact is to the airshed impacting what, you know, kind of issues we might uh, find as it relates to um, impact on the land or the water if these facilities are directly on the harbour. And those reports, A, force or scrutinize, certainly, the the development. They force the Port Authority or their tenant to provide information that may not have been available with past uh, uh, um, developments and would certainly help the city then, uh, from a planning perspective, deal with the provincial government when the certificate is eventually contemplated at that level. Well, it's very timely and very necessary for what's going on, because even though we may not have uh, the jurisdiction on that, we have to live with the consequences of it. Chad, good luck with this. We'll stay in touch as this rolls along through the process. Thanks, Bill. Chad Collins, the uh, City Council for Ward 5. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.